John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, today is what we traditionally celebrate uh, as Epiphany, and it is a wonderful day in the church's calendar. You may know that we still have white out for the paraments, and um, white is symbolizing not only the purity of Jesus Christ and his work and his, the sufficiency of his atonement, but also the purity that he wants to bring his people into. And one of the things that I love about this time and celebration is it is experiencing expressing how Christ not only came and uh, revealed himself to the people of Israel, but also to the nations. Traditionally on Epiphany, we will read out of Matthew 2, but if you were here during Christmas Eve, we already did Matthew 2 this year. Um, And it's not that we couldn't do it again, but I thought because of the fittingness of having a wedding here just yesterday, that since we were going to be reading this in two weeks, we might just change the order. Uh, As I said yesterday during the wedding, Uh, Symbols are important, but they're not the most important thing. Likewise, liturgy is very important, um, but the lectionary is advisory. It's not a mandatory thing. Uh, We're not a part of any group that requires us to use the particular lectures on the particular days. And in by God's grace, uh, it actually happens to be the case that Tom Kelby is preaching on the same passage in a different church that doesn't follow the lectionary. And so it's kind of a wonderful coincidence uh, that I found that out this morning. They, he, he usually texts all of the texts, all of the table fellowship pastors asking us what we're preaching about. And so you have the good knowledge that other brothers and sisters who you know are looking about at this passage. And so uh, what a wonderful passage we have. And I thought it would be, as I said, fitting because of what happened yesterday to examine what the revelation of Jesus Christ's glory was in the wedding of Cana. 
So the, the entire season of Epiphany is not just a recognition of Christ's glory to the nations, but really it focuses on, the whole season of Epiphany focuses on his glory revealed to God's people, whether they be of national Israel or whether they be of the Gentiles. And one of the amazing things that happens in this reading is that Jesus reveals his glory on, in a public setting, but he does it in a way that not everyone catches what's going on. Not only did God come near in Christ, as we celebrate in Advent and Christmas, he made himself known. It is not as if Christ has come and then wise men still seek him, find him. No, they were directed, as we saw on Christmas Eve. And and this shows us the doctrine of God. Christ came, was incarnate, and revealed himself. It, It wasn't the fact that people found him. He he displayed his power. He displayed his glory. In Advent and Christmas, we anticipated and we remembered Israel's waiting, and then we celebrated the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And now in Epiphany, we celebrate his manifestation, his revealing of his power and his glory and his wisdom. In Christmas, we celebrate that the light has come, but now in Epiphany, we celebrate that the light has shown himself. He is emanated his glory, the radiance of his person through his deeds and actions, through his teaching and his personal presence. In this wedding at Cana, Jesus displays his glory and he, he br- graciously brings a blessing to this couple as we're going to see where there was extreme shame. We're going to examine some of the culture of Israel at this day and why it was so important, why it's such a tragedy that the wedding had run run out. Jesus Christ not only shows his power over all things, but he does it in such a way that men might believe in him and have faith and, and come to him as the true wine, the true thing which satisfies and fills their Uh, quenches their thirst and gives them joy. Jesus Christ is not only revealing himself and his power, he's revealing himself in his preciousness and his value and his worth and his excellence. So to that end, I want to look at three ideas from this passage. First, that Christ was gracious in his covenant celebration. He was gracious in his attendance to this event I want to look at Mary's persistence and Jesus' meekness as John highlights this interplay, very quick interplay between his mother and himself and then the vessels that were chosen and the nature of what new wine is and why it's so perplexing what the master of the feast says. Everything that Christ does not only shows his power, as I said earlier, it also shows the preciousness of who he is. Jesus Christ is not only the atonement for our sins. He's not only the one who defeated death and the grave. He not only ascended, but in himself, he is the manifestation as the God-man of all of God's virtues and attributes. And everything Christ does here in this passage points to his excellence as a human the ideal human, not just doing a miracle of power, but showing through how he does it, showing the grace that is operating in his life by the Holy Spirit being God and man. Marriage, we know, is the joining together of man and wife, not man and man, not woman and woman. That's why 
the ancient English have passed it down, man and wife, describing a relationship. I was in a discussion with someone a few months ago, and they were complaining about how we use God's title, that he's the Lord or God Almighty, and we don't always use his name, Yahweh. And they fail to understand that in our Bibles, the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, when it is capitalized in small caps, is a transliteration. It is a transliteration that is intended to say, there's no way to bring Yahweh into English. And so we use a title. But that title is not just something that is impersonal, but it's actually a relational word. This person was saying, using the word Lord for God is an impersonal thing. And actually, it's a very personal thing because it emphasizes his nature and our relationship to that title. You're going to notice, if you were listening, John never says Mary. He only writes his mother. And it's not dishonoring to Mary to write his mother because it's emphasizing, highlighting, upholding the relationship. There's something deeply important in the words that John uses. We know that from Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's ambiguous based on the way your text shows it to you, whether or not this is Moses' poem, it's offset from the narrative. There's the narrative, as we read yesterday, of Adam and the woman who's brought to him, who after he will later name her Eve. Um, There's this poem offset from the narrative, and most people think, oh, that's Moses, you know, ruminating or, or working out some sort of need to have some sort of literary break or a poem to highlight the significance of the thing. But later, Jesus will quote these words saying, God said these words. And so Moses is really capturing what God said at that time. He did something. He brought this man and wife together, and then God spoke. He spoke a blessing upon them. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This first marriage is archetypal. It is an archetype. First, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. And what we're hearing is God did something with Adam and the woman, with the man and the woman, and then God made a speech saying, just as I've done this in the first instance, it shall be the pattern for all the future instances. And then verse 25, it says, the man and his wife, versus a man and his wife. The point is this, God has established the pattern and is specifically involved, specially involved in each wedding. This is a very important thing to know if you are married. God was involved in your marriage. Was it a bad marriage? Were you foolish? Did you marry, quote-unquote, the wrong person? Not anymore. (laughs) God was involved in your wedding. Will it be hard? Every marriage is hard. We had a wonderful picture of that yesterday. By God's grace, that candle wouldn't light. For those of you who missed the wedding, we, we lit a unity candle or tried to. And no matter what we did, it wouldn't work. And in the moment, the only thing I could think was, what a wonderful 
lesson that we're learning. What a wonderful, what they call teachable moments. Sometimes things in, in marriage are difficult. The point is this, God has established and conferred his blessing upon the institution of marriage. God's people therefore celebrate a message because God has established, uh, uh, celebrate a marriage because God has established that marriage. Marriage is not man's invention, and it is not man's institution. In fact, marriage outlasts all the institutions of the entire earth. Marriage is older than education. Marriage is older than clubs and fraternities, brotherhoods among men or sisterhoods among women. Marriage predates all forms of social and political collectives. Marriage outlasts and is therefore transcendent to the state. The state does not define marriage, although they have a right to authorize and prohibit in certain uh, particular reasons, the state can't define marriage. And what our culture has done, what our country has done, is not only high-handed treason, it's a logical impossibility. It's not only attempting to be God, it's also attempting to defy logic, because this is God's world, and logic is God's logic. Therefore, God's people celebrate these things. We don't hide them in a corner. We're not ashamed of sexuality. The man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. It was a beautiful, glorious thing. It is a wonderful gift by God to his people, not only for the propagation of the human species, human race, not only for the fulfilling of Adam's task, but also for enjoyment and celebration. Life is not about just his task. What is God, God is teaching Adam, life is not just about tending and keeping the garden. You also need to tend and keep this woman. And this woman, by the way, Adam, will tend and keep you. Why do you think I, I've learned how to dress well? My wife has helped me. And not only my wife, Carla's wife, uh, Jason's wife has helped him. And I learned it from Jason. <laughs> what, wives are wonderful things. They're precious gifts. They're glorious. In fact, Paul says the glory of Christ is, uh, the glory of a man is Christ. The glory of the, uh, the man is the woman. Right? The idea that that she's the culmination, it's the capstone, it's the pinnacle of God's creation. It's the final thing to be done. It's much more than a cherry on top. It's, there's no metaphor to properly describe it. Therefore, because marriage is such a wonderful thing, Christ's attendance to this marriage shows something about his heart and the way that we must live our Christian's li- Christian life. In Christ's actions, we learn the truth. What Christ does his, his, the way, and the way that he does it teaches us something about life. Christianity is not holiness that is stoic. Christianity is not holiness that refuses to be happy. That's actually Phariseeism. It has nothing to do with Christ. In the Gospels, Christ never refuses someone who asked him for his blessing. Now, there are a few times where Christ did not chase down sinners who were running away from him, we, we remember the rich young ruler, he came and he wanted to follow Christ or supposedly wanted to do what God wanted. Christ pointed out his deep idolatry of mammon, money, love of money, and he was unwilling to let it go and he walked away sad. Christ didn't chase down the rich young ruler. Never, never deceive yourself that you'll have another chance. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Christ not only didn't refuse to attend, he participated in what was going to be a very long celebration. Christ, by attending, gave the grace of his presence to the wedding. God came to this wedding. The incarnate God came to this wedding. Jesus Christ not only partook of the celebration, he also, through his actions, he guarded the celebration. He did something to protect and to sustain what was being missed. Therefore, as God's people, our joyful celebration of God's covenant is part of our life. It is not just Austin and Morgan who made a covenant before God. In some way, though we are not a part of their marriage singularly, we are a part of their marriage as a people. We are all promising to uphold and sustain, to not destroy or trifle with their marriage, to pray for them as a couple and members of this church. Our celebration last night, therefore, was a good and right thing. It was acknowledging the hand of God. God was doing a miracle. Even before the the miracle of the wine, God was doing a miracle in the wedding at Cana, like he was doing it yesterday. Therefore, marriage is not a non-religious event. It's not an event which can be celebrated outside the context of recognizing God's participation. Rather, marriage is an institution which derives its being from God and is a chief highlight of any congregation. Being a great covenant celebration among God's people, weddings in Israel lasted an entire week. If you thought the party went on long last night, it didn't actually go that long. Imagine for another six whole days, dancing, festivities, joy, calves that are standing outside the place because it's not time to slaughter them yet. That's the calf we'll have on Thursday, and that's the calf we'll have on Friday. (laughs) And the whole community would come, and they would celebrate joyously before the Lord. There'd be dancing, there'd be drinking, there'd be an experience of God's joy. And the point of this is that, that they're recognizing the miraculous substance that's happening before their eyes. God is doing something amazingly great. A son of Jacob, a daughter of Rachel, coming together. They're they're now joining and they're now continuing on the tradition of Israel. The celebration of a wedding, therefore, is a wonderful and holy thing. And the idea that the wedding is supposed to go on for an entire week helps us to understand the significance of what John has read. When the wine had run out, the celebration has halted. The party is over. It's, it's like pulling the cord on the music. When it just shuts off, everybody's going to go home. The point of the wedding, or the, the wedding ending with the wine running out would have been great shame. Running out of, a, of wine at a wedding brings shame social shame for two possible reasons. And this coming at the very beginning of a couple's new life in the community would have been hard to overlook, and it certainly would have been impossible to remember. If you were supposed to travel to your relative city at great expense to you in that day, you couldn't just buy a ticket on Southwest and get there in a few hours. You you had to make a journey to a new town and you are expecting, and you've set aside time and resource to celebrate with them for a whole entire week. Imagine the memory of this for the couple, but also for the community. Everyone would remember, oh, that's, 
That's Sally and Jim, where the wine ran out on day two, and we all had to go home. Sure, it was a shame that the party ended too early. I think, as I said, there's two possible reasons that the wine ran out. Ultimately, the singular reason is that it was the providence of God as he wanted to display the glory of his son and the power of his son uh, working a miracle. However, on the human level, there's at least, one, at least two, perhaps more, ways that we can understand why the, ran, the, why the wine ran out. The first option, which I think is, is probably more likely, is that this couple was very poor. It could be the case that they were a relative of Jesus or Mary uh, through a cousin or an uncle, and that this was just a poor couple, and perhaps too many guests had showed up, and they did not make enough provisions. The other one would be, it was just a simple oversight of not understanding the tradition. They didn't recognize the obligations, and this couple did not have um, facilitators and hosts in the community who helped them understand the expectations. The other one that I think is perhaps likely, you could add a third, but I, I almost didn't want to mention it, is that the, the people running the ceremonies just lost it, or they didn't bring it with them to the, the celebration. There's lots of possible speculations that we could have, but I think the idea of poverty is the most appealing one, not only for historic reasons of why I think this took place, but also, I think, theological reasons. It's, it's important for us to understand this is a real and very significant lack. It's either a lack of wisdom or it's a lack of resource. It's a lack of that, that comes through either folly or poverty. But essentially, the point is this party is totally over and everyone is going home. In verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Notice the interplay here. She says, the wine's run out. Notice Mary did not go around and facilitate upheaval. She, what I think, privately and, and perhaps quite quietly whispered this to Jesus. When she sees this tragedy, she turns to Jesus to solve the problem. We know that Mary had lived for her entire life with a knowledge that Christ was the Messiah. Joseph had heard, as we celebrated in Christmas, from the angel Gabriel that you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When all of the people came bringing gifts, everyone recognized but it says something in Luke that Mary treasured these things in her heart. Everyone else knew some details, but they didn't know so as to apprehend and hold. Jesus' rebuff or slight rebuke shows a beautiful and glorious act or aspect of his obedience. As regards the timing for the unveiling of his glory to the nation, Jesus was led by God, not by himself. Jesus was not choosing when to display his glory. Though he, it says, the scriptures do say that Jesus went and lived in subjection to his father and mother in the time of his youth, at this point, his mother has no right to command him to perform a miracle. In fact, no human has a right to command 
God to perform a miracle. Nevertheless, Christ is looking to his Father at all times. In John 5, 19, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And that wasn't a development in the middle of John's gospel. That was Jesus' entire life. Being informed by the Scriptures, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus lived in a perpetual relationship to God by which he always did God's will and he knew God's will. Therefore, he only does what he sees his Father doing. Likewise, his refusal to show a miracle uh, shows a beautiful and glorious aspect of his meekness. Not only his obedience, but also his meekness. We see in the Gospels that Jesus is never vainglorious. Jesus is never self-seeking. Jesus never wants to be made much of in the Gospels. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, and he did it for one reason. He wanted his public ministry to last as long as it should, according to God's timing, and he never was a self-promoter. Jesus was not vainglorious or seeking his own because love seeks not its own. Jesus never did a miracle merely out of convenience. Think about this, brothers and sisters. If you had power to do whatever you wished, and I believe he had power to do it whatever God wanted him to do, he was God in the flesh, the sort of meekness which chooses to live as a human, susceptible to all the regular human needs and desires and appetites and necessities of sleep and probably sickness and bodily discomfort and aching, Jesus lived as a real human. He does not do miracles out of convenience. In fact, one of the gospels that was a, uh, a fake gospel, uh, it wasn't a real gospel that the church quickly dismissed, included stories where Jesus was doing little miracles around as a child just, just for play and just for convenience. The point is that Jesus is not only obedient to his Father, he himself is meek and humble. In Moses' writings, it says Moses was the meekest man or the humblest man in all the earth, and Jesus clearly outranks even Moses in this regard. There seems to be this mysterious moment of faith on the part of Mary. As we know, because Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing, as we hear in John 5, Jesus did not act immediately because the Father had not told him to act. Other people in the gospel, when they come to Jesus for a particular need, are occasionally rebuffed or rebuked, slightly rebuked, in the way that Jesus did this. Oftentimes, Jesus does this as a test to see if the person actually has faith that he is not only able to save them, but he himself is worth greater than the miracle. Like those who are also rebuffed in the Gospels, Mary avoids the occasion for offense that is present in his statement. By calling her woman, it is not a term of disrespect. In fact, I remember watching a video when some of the translators of your ESV were discussing the difficulty in communicating this idea. It is much like a title. Woman or mother or virgin are all used of Mary. And yet, it would have been impolite to say Mary. It would have been more polite to call her woman. In English, it is often like the title lady. 
However, the translators of the English understand that lady is so archaic in modern English that it would throw us right out of the story. We'd instantly be transported to King Arthur's round table. <laughs> he can't call her lady. It's, it's too medieval. And so he calls her woman. That is not the part of the offense. The offense is, what does this have to do with me? She had been treasuring in her heart, this is the Messiah. He's the one who will be the miracle worker. The understanding of the Messiah in Israel's day was not only the one who would work wonders, but he would deliver his people and he would show his glory through signs. And up until this point, at 30 years or so old, her son had never shown his glory. He had never shown his power. However, as soon as she simply moves past the the occasion for offense, and in, in my understanding of what's going on here, is drawing by faith, knowing that God will do something, she simply continues. Now, brothers and sisters, I have no room for the faith message, and neither does this church. It is not our faith which causes God to act on our behalf. Faith is a gift. She treasured the promises, and that was the well from which she drew in the moment. She didn't manifest some sort of faith that didn't come from God. She relied upon what she had heard, and she did it because she treasured the words. I have treasured up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Mary treasured these promises of Jesus Christ, and she wanted to know him in his glory. Jesus' command at this point in the story to use these vessels for washing, I believe, is no accident. Remember, Jesus is not just shown by what he does. He's shown how he himself is shown in the means that he uses or the how he does it. These vessels at this celebration had a specific use. They were used for washing the hands and the feet before partaking in the meal. There's a commentator that I love to use, John Gill. He is the predecessor to Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was the pastor of the church that John Gill was the pastor of. So John Gill passed the baton, if you will, to Charles Spurgeon. Many people don't know John Gill. I love John Gill because he knew Hebrew fluently. And because he knew Hebrew fluently, he would often read and then bring into his biblical commentary ideas from the Hebrew Talmud and and the rabbinic writings. And one of the things that he comments in his commentary is each of these vessels, the six or so vessels that were there, had a specific use. Some could be used for the guests. Some could be used for the bride, uh, excuse me, bride's party and groom's party and groom himself. But one of the vessels was exclusive. It could only be used for the bride. Now, that's not in our text. And it's fine that it's not in our text. I'm not saying that is uh, something you need to bank on. But the point that I'm trying to convey is this. These vessels had honorable purpose. These vessels were supposed to do what he was going to do. They were supposed to hold together the ceremony. They were supposed to make clean those who were coming to uh, be wed. Jesus, therefore, uses vessels of honor for an honorable purpose. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there 
for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus' use of the vessels for washing shows both his wisdom and his graciousness. It's altogether fitting that Jesus would use vessels of honor to bring honor to this couple. And in fact, when we remember the cultural shame that is at this present moment, it all the more heightens what he's doing. Not only does Jesus use vessels of honor, the, the what, but the great quantity with which he makes the wine shows us his grace and liberality. It's a terrible thing that the word liberality has been somewhat pigeonholed into political discussion because it's a great word. It, it means that Christ was free and was freeing in what he was doing. He uses the greatest possible container that was likely there to hold the wine that he was going to make. It says six stone jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. How much is a bottle of wine these days? Three quarters of a gallon, but in cost. Depends on how nice the wine is. But a regular cheap wine, $10 for a liter, right? The point, the point that I'm trying to emphasize here, he's, he's making 20 to 30 gallons per, per container with six containers. 120 gallons of wine. Not only is this a huge amount of wine, it's precious, valuable wine. It's excellent wine, as we're going to see, and it is a gracious expression of the heart of Jesus Christ towards his people. Jesus' commands to the servant also demonstrate his recognition of authority and God-ordained order. Jesus does not rebuke the couple Notice this, brothers and sisters, Jesus makes no comments to the couple in John's recording of the events. Jesus does not rebuke the couple, and he does not usurp the authority in the festivity, nor does he even draw attention to what he is doing. Remembering the context of washing, that is the washing of John the Baptist in the prior chapter, Christ's intention is clear. In the baptism of John, which we'll probably read about next week, Christ recognized the authority that John had. He submitted himself as a man, remembering that he is the God-man. He submitted himself to John's baptism because it was, as he said, it was fitting. It was altogether right because he, he was going to be the head of his people, a redeemed and washed people. Not only does Christ recognize the authority of John, that authority being placed there by God, he also recognize, recognizes the authority of those who are running the festivities. Christ tells the servants to submit the water became wine to the master of the feast for his inspection and approval. John's very careful to highlight only the servants knew where the wine had come from. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
Now, this verse here sounds like a commendation, doesn't it? It sounds like the master of the ceremonies is calling up the groom, and he's calling him to, to ask him something or, or, or merely just highlight that you've not only solved potentially this great problem, but you've done it in a way that is extremely perplexing and worth noting. It's, it's, it's as if this groom has gone from a man of shame to a man of mark, a man of recognition. Why, we have to ask ourselves, is the commendation given? After the master of the feast tastes the wine, he commends the bridegroom on the quality of the wine. Jesus' wine is clearly better than what had been served before. In a parable in Luke's gospel in chapter 5, Jesus describes the nature of wine and aging. In describing the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, Jesus describes the new covenant as new wine. In Luke 5, 37 through 39, we read, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Skins that were often made out of either like a, a goat skin that was sewn up so that it would be watertight, or perhaps like through tanning, some other animal's skin would be used. And they, they were stretchy. They could expand as the wine was fermenting, but an old wineskin that holds new wine will explode. That's why it says they'll, they'll burst, because the new wine is fermenting. The new wine is expanding. The new wine is producing things. Verse 38 reads, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And here's why I'm mentioning this parable in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. The point is this, old wine is better than new wine. If you take grapes and smash them and make them into wine and bottle it and distribute it that year, it doesn't have the sort of attributes that old wine has. Wine is a parable of the kingdom. It takes time to mature. And yet this new wine that Jesus is talking about, the new covenant, is much better than the old wine. He's rebuking these people who are not recognizing the glory of the new covenant for treasuring the glory of the old covenant. Yes, there was indeed a glory that came through Moses. But Jesus is saying, don't miss what's going on in the new covenant. This new wine shouldn't be dismissed. The old isn't better than the new in this case. The one thing that this parable teaches us is this. Excellent wine must be aged. Therefore, I believe this parable not only shows Jesus' meekness, in following his father's direction and his submission to authority in telling the servants to take it to the master of the ceremonies. But when the master of the ceremonies tastes the excellent nature of the wine, Jesus is not only being displayed as Lord over matter, turning water into wine, but he's also being pre presented as Lord over time because he can create excellent things without, mature, without needing the clock to move forward. We sing a song at this church. We haven't sung it for a while, but it's crown him with many crowns. And the fourth stanza of that hymn is excellent. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time. Potentate means the one who's a powerful ruler, the one whose rule is done without anyone resisting his rule. The creator of the rolling spheres, the, the heavens, Saturn and Jupiter, 
with all of their moons and the comets and the, the stars and the galaxies outside of our solar system. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. Ineffably sublime is perhaps my favorite two words in any one hymn. It is ineffable. It's unable to be expressed. Sublime doesn't mean, you know, a rock pan from the 90s or or the process of matter-changing states, sublime means altogether transcendent in ecstasy. It means a joy that it goes beyond every other thing. It's sublime. How'd you like that cake? It was sublime. We don't use it anymore, but we need to re- use it. But the point is, Christ's excellence is so ineffable because he's the Lord over time. He's the Lord over all seasons. He's the Lord over all seasons in your life. He's the Lord over all time in our life as a people, in this country's life, in this world's life. He's the Lord over everything. The excellence of this wine shows not only the glory of Christ in how he did it, but also in what he did, his glory and his grace. It's important to remember that, as John records, this takes place on the third day. Throughout John's gospel, this period of three days is always used to refer to the rising of the dead. In every single time where John in his gospel uses the third day, it always refers to rising of the dead. After Lazarus had died, it says that Jesus had waited three more days. In John chapter 2, later in this same chapter, Jesus says, tear down this temple and after three days I will rise it up again. John's not wasting words at the beginning of chapter 2. When he says this happens on the third day, he's explaining the significance. Having been moved by the Holy Spirit to highlight this detail of Christ's action, Jesus is essentially doing a resurrection of this wedding. Before, this party was dead and over, and now Christ brings new life to it. Where there was social shame, Christ not only replaces or covers over the shame, he replaces it with a blessing and great honor upon the couple. Now, instead of everyone in the community remembering, oh, that's Sally and Jim where the wine ran out on day two, and we all wasted all that money traveling there, those foolish poor people, now they celebrate. Those are those people who know where to get really good wine that is really precious no one will ever forget this wedding. What's so beautiful about this is most people, most people do not see the glory that is happening at all. In the miracle at the wedding of Cana, Jesus displays his glory to his people that they may, might see his lordship. Through the changing of water into wine, Christ shows that he is lord over creation by, changing, by creating wine that is most excellent, Christ shows that he is Lord over time and Lord over wisdom. He knows what is in vogue in wine in Israel. Wine changes. Appetites, perspectives, they change. Jesus made the right wine for the right culture in a great amount. By restoring honor upon this couple, Christ shows that he is Lord over marriage and he is Lord over all of human society. He is Lord over social mores and ethics. He is altogether lovely. 
Christ shows his glory in this wedding through both the water and the wine, reminding us of both baptism and the Eucharist. In fact, you can now see it because we have elevated our liturgical sensibilities in our church. And you can actually, if you think about what's going on in our celebration today, at the entrance of the church is a baptismal, and there's water there. And when you process into the church, you arrive at the wine. There's a movement as we come in among God's people that we go from the water of mundane things to the life of Christ and the joy that is found in Christ. This tells us that the gospel of Christ is not merely a forgiveness of sins. Remember, these vessels were for purification. But Christ not only bestows purification, he bestows new life, a joy that comes through experiencing and tasting him. This new life is that sort of life by which man is made alive with God and to commune with God and his fellow man in Christ. What Jesus is doing through this wedding and through John's recording of this wedding is saying that he not only makes a man clean, he also makes him glad. Christ does not merely wipe away our sins and give us an ability to start over again. He wipes away our sins and fills us with joy everlasting. Remember, brothers and sisters, the vessels were filled to the brim. There was nothing lacking in Christ's action. The wine of the wedding at Cana also points forward to the wine at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we will anticipate today in our wedding feast that we are hoping one day to arrive at. When we come in just a few minutes to this table, we are not only remembering what Christ had done at that Passover night, but we also are trusting in the promises of what Christ is going to do at the end of the age as he brings his whole bride together and celebrates with her forever. So as Christ has cleaned his people and given them unceasing joy, let us be filled with the Spirit as we celebrate his redemption. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are not only a God of cleansing of your people, you are also a God of joy. We ask you, therefore, that you would fill us with joy as we come to your table. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.